So I just checked online, April 7, 2000, I was the speaker who was closest to the exact top of the NASDAQ. Um, and so last time you had me, it was perfect timing of a market top. Absolutely perfect. I don't know what that means about what's happening right now. <laughs> but 10 years from now, we'll look back and we'll say, aha. So anyway, I just wanted to basically, I don't have anything prepared, so I just wanted to basically launch straight into Q&A. Um, just as sort of background for people who might not have caught up um, with what I'm doing, my most recent thing is um, uh, I started a new venture capital firm uh, with uh, several friends and colleagues last summer. Um, actually, we have uh, four of my uh, friends and colleagues from the firm who are here somewhere in the crowd. Over there, there we go, there's the contingent. Um, and so later on, if you want to talk to any, uh, any of these folks, um, so uh, Ronnie runs all of our uh, partnership and networking efforts. Um, Fred is our new analyst. Um, this is uh, week number one for Fred. Um, and then uh, Dave and Ellen um, uh, work on our recruiting. We actually run an in-house, uh, essentially, recruiting function for our startup companies. Um, and so um, they work on that. Um, and uh, Sorry? Oh, okay, great. Got it. Yep. Um, and so um, uh, we um, would be delighted, and obviously you know, I'd be delighted to talk to folks afterwards, but we'd be delighted to talk to you. So we started a venture capital firm last summer. Um, actually, another story of timing. Um, we raised that venture capital fund in starting in March uh, of last year, March of 2009, which was the exact um, low of the um, uh, economic crisis, the credit crisis. So there's something in what we do that we hit either the highs or the lows. I don't exactly know what it is. But uh, we raised a $300 million fund last, uh, last summer, opened up. We've been in business for, for about nine months now. Uh, we do Silicon Valley tech investing. Um, our biggest deal so far is Skype, uh, although we've uh, backed a whole series of other interesting companies. Um, and then boards that I'm on uh, at the moment include Facebook, uh, eBay, and Hewlett Packard. Um, and then I continue to be very involved in my company, Ning, um, which is a social networking company uh, here locally. Um, and so uh, with just sort of that as a general uh, background, um, let me just throw it open for questions and see what people want to talk about. Yeah. Hey, Mark. Um, question for you on moving from being an entrepreneur to venture capital. Um, I'm going to be doing a similar thing. and I'm wondering what your perspective is in working with venture capitalists who don't have any entrepreneurial background, which unfortunately represents a large chunk, how you deal with um, board conflict in advising folks in that scenario. Okay, so the question is, um, as an entrepreneur turned venture capitalist myself, um, how do you work with other venture capitalists uh, who may not have entrepreneurial experience, um, or in some cases operating experience? Um, yeah, well, we like to observe that um, in California you need a license uh, to drive a car or, or buy a gun, uh, but not to be a venture capitalist. Um, and so um, it is true that issues arise. Um, and if you talk to a cross-section of entrepreneurs, you'll generally you'll get, you'll get various stories in terms of uh, their directors who may not have a deep operational background and some of the issues that arise. Um, so let me just give a, a few general thoughts um, without naming names. Um, so uh, first of all, I would say that if you look at the folks who are the best venture capitalists over time, some of them have very deep operating backgrounds and have been entrepreneurs themselves. And actually, some of them have not. Uh, so some of the very best uh, venture capitalists, uh, as an example, Mike Moritz um, had a background as a journalist before he became a VC. Uh, John Doerr had a background, had worked at, um, in engineering and sales at, uh, at, at Intel. Uh, and at, at, at Monsanto before that, actually, when Monsanto had a chip business uh, uh, back in the uh, early 80s. Um, and so um, you know, he had experience in, in business, but had not himself started a company. Um, actually, interestingly, Tom Perkins had um, the, the actual original, one of the original co-founders of Kleiner Perkins, but, uh, but John had not. Um, and, you know, and then in contrast, of course, Vinod Khosla um, uh, had been uh, himself a very successful entrepreneur uh, as another example. And then uh, Don Valentine, another great VC, uh, had been a very experienced operator uh, of, of in, the, in the chip business. So you get this very interesting cross-section um, of, of sort of success cases. And so one of the things I try to do is not 
so kind of say up front, I don't think there's necessarily a predictor that just because somebody has an operating background or has been an entrepreneur that they're going to be a good VC, or conversely, that if you don't, you're not going to be a good VC. Um, that said, um, you know, part of the reason we became venture capitalists, my, my business partner Ben Horowitz and I became venture capitalists after starting and running companies ourselves, um, was because we think it can be quite helpful and additive um, to a startup when their investors and board members have actually done it before um, and have actually been through uh, the um, experiences. And of course, we, we go on to say that this is completely irrelevant in the case where your company just instantaneously succeeds and everything is up and to the right and everything is glorious. Um, then anybody can be a good board member. You know, it's when the times get tough and things get difficult. Um, it helps a lot to have been through a layoff or a restructuring uh, or a forced sale or a recap, you know, all the other things that you uh, restart and all the other things you end up going through as an entrepreneur. Um, and so, you know, I do think that's helpful and important. Um, the characteristic of the venture capital industry right now is that you know, we're on the sort of fourth or fifth generation of VCs in some of the older firms. Um, and so there are certainly plenty of uh, VCs who have finance backgrounds as contrasted to operating backgrounds or as contrasted to entrepreneurial backgrounds. And so I think there's a real opportunity for, I mean, speaking, uh, sort of talking my own book, uh, as I say on Wall Street, I think there's a real opportunity for VCs who have an operating and entrepreneurial background to add a lot of value in these companies. Um, and so we spend time basically, you know, when we go into a situation with the other investors who are already in trying to understand, do they have that background? Um, if not, how are they, you know, when they, when they, when they get into the thing? Um, so I think it's helpful. The um, flip side of it, I, I would say, though, the, the danger, and we, we, we got a talking to it from all of our friends in venture capital before we became VCs, and they were very rigorous with us in this point, so I think I'll repeat it as the danger of an operator who becomes a VC is that he, start, he continues to want to be an operator, um, and so then he tries to operate the companies that he's in from the board, uh, and of course, that's lethal. Like, that's just a, a prescription for disaster. Um, and so the best professional investors we've found over the years are very good at understanding what's going on, and they're very good at helping, but they have a remove from the day-to-day -day operations um, because the minute they don't and the minute they get too hands-on, things start to go seriously wrong. Um, it, it really is impossible to run these companies from the board. Um, and so we, we as VCs are, are going to try to live up to that. Yes, sir. That market is somewhat hot. I think it's kind of urgent to have a um, $100 billion fund uh, dedicated to iPhone apps. Uh, do, you look, do you think the app, apps are, single apps are interesting to invest in Android apps or iPhone apps, or would you only consider whole uh, platforms uh, on the mo uh, mobile platforms? So the question is on sort of the hotness right now of the, of the application market, especially on platforms like iPhone and Android. Um, and there's a tremendous amount of investment going into companies building applications on these new platforms like iPhone and Android. Um, so we have a, maybe a little bit of a contrarian point of view um, on sort of the general sort of um, assumption behind the question, uh, if you will. And, and the reason I'm also asking is an app, it just seems like how much revenue can that actually generate? Right, right. So the question is, how much revenue can an, can an app actually generate? So uh, our answer to this kind of thing is always, it depends, which is my favorite answer of all time. Um, I can always start an answer that depends and then talk for half an hour. <laughs> People think I've said something. So um, uh, it really depends. So um, it, it's a little bit like the early days. To us, it looks a little bit like the early days of the PC industry, where you know, in the early days of the PC industry, you would open up a magazine like PC Magazine, and there would be ads for thousands and thousands of different software applications you know, doing all kinds of different things, games and learning tools and type typing instructors and file your recipes and all this stuff. Um, most of the companies that produce those applications are long gone because those weren't significant categories. Um, they weren't, you couldn't build a real business around them. On the other hand, you had companies like Microsoft and Lotus and Adobe and others that were building applications like Photoshop or Lotus 1, 2, 3 or Microsoft Word that turned into empires. Um, so I, I really think on this kind of thing, the, 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 the answer is it depends. 
Um, and so in a nutshell, like we wouldn't invest in an app company because it's an app company, but we also wouldn't avoid it because it's an app company. Oh, we would look very carefully at the specific uh, thing of what it does. And by the way, let me generalize out and say that's the same answer I give to almost any question involving a particular category. So people say, well, location-based services are really hot. You know, what are you doing there? Or people say e-commerce is hot again, like with all these new group buying services. Uh, what are you going to invest there? And our answer is we are going to do absolutely nothing um, in the category because um, the worst thing you can do is go into a category and just like try to find something to invest in um, because if the good ones are already taken, then you invest in the bad one, you lose all your money. It, it's like it's a bad formula, and there are VCs who do that, um, and we don't recommend it. Um, so on the other hand, if we get the opportunity to invest in a very special company with a special founding team and product idea and market position and strategy, um, then we'll do that in almost any category. Um, in fact, one of our favorite things to do is actually invest in categories that other people believe to be dead. Um, and so, for example, we're very excited about investing in enterprise software. And people say, well, that's ridiculous. Enterprise software is dead. You know that nobody can do that uh, anymore. And it turns out um, between 2002 and 2008, the sort of most recent period where these things are measured, the top performing sector in all of venture capital is enterprise software, precisely because everybody thought it was dead. And so um, the companies that got funded had practically no competition. Um, and the people who made the investments actually could invest very cheap because very few people wanted to fund those companies. Um, so uh, we're absolutely delighted to go into sectors that, are, that people view as dead, and we're also happy to go into sectors that, that are brand new as long as there's a specific company with something magical uh, happening. Yes? I'm just curious from your own experience, what sort of criteria you used when you decided to actually start a business? I'm guessing you had a lot of ideas. If you're someone who has different ideas, and what, would you, what criteria would you use to say, okay, this, this I'm going to pursue, as opposed to this I'm not going to pursue? Well, so the general criteria for a successful high-tech startup um, in my view, there's, you see different sort of rules of thumb from different people, but the, the three big things you always come back to are, is, it, is, is there a big market? And, and by the way, that comes in two parts. Is there a big existing market that you think you can go after and sort of displace incumbents, or, is, is it, or do you believe there will be a new market that will be big? So a big market. Um, is there a fundamental technology or economic change that causes you to basically justify having a new company? Um, and that's really important. Um, so, you know, and, and the way I always think about that is, is there a 10x change happening in the technology landscape? Um, is something 10x faster or 10x cheaper or 10x better? And if it's not 10x, we, we view as both VCs and entrepreneurs, we really have to ask ourselves, like, is it really worth doing? Because um, it's really hard. I mean, it's really hard to start new companies. Tell you my macro theory. New, new companies generally shouldn't exist. Um, um, existing companies are usually pretty good at what they do. Um, and so for a new company to exist, it not only has to, like, you know, come in, go, you know, go into business and bring a product to market, but it has to bring a product to market that's so much better than what already exists that it punches through the sort of status quo. Um, and you know, most customers in most markets are pretty happy buying from the current suppliers. And so there has to be a real kind of edge uh, on the thing. And we look for that in either a technology change, usually a technology change or an economic change, um, which are often the same thing. Um, and then the third is team. Is, is the team outstanding? And if you think about this as an entrepreneur, it becomes a question of the founding team. Um, you know, if, you know, some companies are solo founders and they can work. But generally, you know, most of us, like myself, who are human beings, are mortal. Um, you know, you want to have a founding team of, multi, uh, of, uh, of complementary skill sets. And so you want to have at least one super strong technologist, um, quite possibly more than one. Um, some of the best startups are actually more than one founding technologist. And then it often helps to have somebody who's like a product or who's a, who's a, a market or sales person or has a sort of really good understanding of business uh, on the team certainly helps a lot. Um, and so we sort of like at market, product, and team. Um, and, you know, the reality is you need all three. 
Um, I would say, interestingly, if you're going to compromise as an investor, if we're going to compromise on one of those, it would actually be the product. And the reason I say that is because a great market is a lot easier to make up for with iterative product execution um, than a poor market. Because the problem with a poor market, a small market, is even if you do a great job on the product, there just aren't that many customers. It's hard to ever get big. Uh, people get demoralized. So you know, we definitely focus a lot on the size of the market and then, and, then, and then also the team. And we actually evaluate the team in a startup based on its ability to get into a big market with a good product. Um, and so one of the things we look for early on um, as, as VCs is we don't need the team that's going to run the company when it's 500 people and 100 million in revenue. Like, that's irrelevant. We need the people who can get the product to market in a big market, and if they're wrong, keep adjusting to get into the right market. So that's the general template, and that's how we always thought about it um, um, as entrepreneurs. Um, there is, however, one other thing we look at um, that I think is really fundamental and important, and it took a while to figure this one out, and I think it's really interesting. So we sort of categorize, so given all that, then you look at companies and you say, okay, here's a high-quality set of companies. And then we divide them sort of into two buckets. Uh, and we basically say um, there are products that become companies, and then there are companies that come up with a product. Um, and one of the interesting things you see over the years is that many of the most successful technology franchises were products first, way before they ever became companies. Um, and so just in my own experience, Netscape was a research project, was based on a research project at University of Illinois that we had worked on for three years prior. And in fact, the team had come together at Illinois uh, before we started Netscape. Um, you know, Microsoft, Bill Gates, and Paul Allen were like deep into PCs early on before they even thought there was a software business. Um, you know, Apple, you know, Jobs and Wozniak built the first Apple sort of as hobbyists. Um, more recently, Mark Zuckerberg had Facebook running out of his dorm room, you know, way before he ever thought of starting a company. Um, and then my other favorite example is Twitter. Um, Twitter was a side project at a company called Odeo, um, and Odeo wasn't working. Twitter was a couple of guys who were basically knew that the, the Odeo product, which was a podcasting product, was going to fail. Um, and so they were you know, frustrated and unhappy, and so they started this side project, Twitter, and it just started to take off. Um, and so the, the product that becomes a company is a really good template um, because, and here's my sort of theory on that, is because it's a demonstration that the product has to exist. Like, the market needs the product so badly that somebody actually built it and deployed it, and you can actually see evidence that people want it even before there was an economic motivation to do so. Like, that's, that's market demand. Like, that, something magical is going on there at that point. In contrast... Great entrepreneurs who kind of, you know, the sort of stereotypical, well, Hewlett Packard, Hewlett Packard counterexample, company, then product. Um, the original found, HP archives put on, online a while ago, they put the original um, minutes of the first HP board meeting. Um, and they're great minutes because it's like, you know, it's, it's, you know, Mr. Hewlett, Mr. Packard. They were, this was like in the 30s, right? So these guys were really young at the time. And it's like their lawyer and their accountant, whatever. And it's like, you know, assembled and such and such in Palo Alto at 2.48 p.m. And boom, you know, first order of business, cash, company has $3,000, whatever, in the checking account. It's like topic number six, product. Um, and it was one line that said, the product that the company will build um, uh, has not yet been decided, period. <laughs> topic number seven, right? Like they didn't know. Like they didn't know. They had like a general idea that there was going to be something to do with electromechanical, something, something, something. I mean, this was before the computer, um, literally before the computer when they started this thing, right? So they didn't know what it was going to be. Uh, and they came up with many good ideas later, but they didn't know. So that, that's a success case of company first, then product. But... We see a lot of failure cases, which is smart entrepreneurs sitting around saying, I really want to start a company, and now let's go try to figure out something interesting and good to do. And it's very easy in that process, we've found, to kind of fool yourself into believing that there's a market and that there's a need. Because you, you want to find something. You have a very strong motivation, internal motivation, to come out with an answer. It's very hard to go through that process for three months and then say, you know what, we can't come up with any good ideas. You know, let's just go back to our day jobs. Um, so, um, yeah, it's a big company of your choice. Um, and so um, it's a very strong motivation to kind of fool yourself. Um, and so that, that we, we're always a little bit leery of those. Um, and in fact, if you track those kind of through fundraising, like those are often the ones that aren't actually ever able to raise money. 
because um, you know the VCs can kind of you know VCs are good at this kind of thing. They can kind of smell that kind of thing coming. So, uh, moral of the story is it has to be a, it has to be a, it has to be a really good idea. That often will be an idea that is pre-existing at the time you decide to start a company. And if it isn't, be really careful because you're kind of you know you're walking on sharp rocks at that point with a high risk of falling you know off the cliff into the ocean. Um, it's a it's a particularly dangerous scenario to be very aware of. Yeah. Yeah, you, you mentioned on the Charlie Rose show once about the New York Times that they should turn off all the printing presses and go immediately to digital. And I know you've also made some investments recently in media companies like TPM. So I'm just wondering how you see that landscape and what you think for it. Yeah, so good question. Okay, so. Um, uh, I was uh, a while back. I was on the Charlie Rose show, and I talked about how, in my opinion, newspapers—it's easy to have opinions about other people's businesses, and they love it when you do. By the way, um, uh, it's very easy. To, or it's uh, my, my opinion. Basically, was it's, it's newspapers and magazines, um, in, you know, in their current form, are not economically viable. It's time to shut off the printing presses uh, and go digital. And I, 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 provo I provoked it by saying, "Shut off the printing presses," because that's what they're all thinking, but none of them will say. Um, because they all say, well, 80, 90% of our revenue is still coming from the printing press, uh, still coming from the printed edition, and so, and we're not making much money from digital. Um, and so how can we do that? And, of course, my response to that is the reason you're not succeeding digitally um, is because you're not focused on it, right? You're, not, you're, you're playing defense, not offense. So when you go in these organizations, what you find is, you know, attention is exactly correlated to revenue. So if 80 to 90% of your revenue is coming from the old dying business, 80 to 90% of the effort is being spent trying to, trying to preserve the old dying business which dooms you to failure in the new business. Um, and so I said, you know, look, it's the obvious thing to do. And by the way, if you do a margin analysis, like if you look at the cost structure, you would say a lot of the people and a lot of the overhead involved in running a printing press and physical distribution, like if you just nuked all that stuff, you could bring the cost structure of the company down a lot. And then it'd be a lot easier for you to make money digitally because you wouldn't be carrying this huge burden, uh, you know, behind you. I'll give you an example. Newsweek, Newsweek magazine just got put up on the blocks, um, you know, which is still is both print and online. And they've been, Newsweek has been struggling for years to try to figure out how to jump to online, but they still print. Uh, and the most revealing thing in the, um, uh, in, the, in the Washington Post annual report where they talk about Newsweek is Newsweek today. Newsweek, and you know how skinny Newsweek is today. It's like a, it's like a thin little magazine. Like there's not a lot in it. 427 employees. Now, if you said, you know, like, what would Newsweek online, like, what would the true headcount be for that same content if it were distributed online? The answer has to be, like, 30 or 40. Like, it, you know, you, so what are the other 400 people doing? Well, they're doing circulation, and they're doing, you know, they're doing the, the, literally, you know, the, the printing, and they're doing the logistics, and they're coordination with the newsstands, and they're doing inventory, and then they're destroying all the magazines that get sent back that don't get sold, and it's just on and on and on and on. It's like, at a certain point, okay, like, that's not the future. Um, and so the reason I sort of have, even have an opinion on this is because this is exactly the kind of thing that we get faced with in, in the technology industry all the time. Um, so what's ironic, right, we're actually, in the tech, in the tech industry, we're actually used to dealing with this, this exact kind of problem because what happens is the technology changes um, and we have to completely reorient our businesses. Um, and this is, the, you know, this is the innovator's dilemma. This is the classic uh, Intel story that Andy Grove tells in his book, Only the Paranoid Survive, where he talks about Intel used to be huge in the memory business. It was 80% of the revenue, and then the Japanese came in and started systematically undercutting them. And at a certain point, they had to shut down the memory business to be able to focus on the, on the CPU business because they knew that was the future, but they knew the memory business would drag them down. So what I always tell people in the media business is, you're just not used to the technology changing like that, right? And then they say, you know, well, that's a good point. The newspaper in its current form was invented in Italy in the 1500s. And I'm like, okay, if I was in an industry where, you know, the current business, literally the current form of the business had been invented 500 years ago and had not changed, yeah, you can see why that would be difficult to deal with. 
Um, but in my view, you know, leaders of a business, and this is true of every business I've been involved in and every business I'm invested in, and it's like top of mind for every time I work, work with any business, is you know, if there are a set of disruptive changes coming, it's incredibly important to go on offense. It's incredibly important to get set up um, to be able to, uh, to, to compete vigorously. Um, and then this is why, putting my money where my mouth is, this is why I've invested in Talking Points Memo and I've invested in um, Business Insider, which is Henry Blodgett's operation out of New York. Uh, uh, they run a whole bunch of sites, including Silicon Alley Insider. Um, and there's a whole bunch of these. TechCrunch locally here is another one. The new media businesses are structured properly for the future. And so you go to Talking Points Memo, and it's not a huge company yet, but right, it's also like 30 people, not 427. Um, and it's hiring and not firing. And it's 100% digital, uh, and there's no time and effort you know, worrying about trying to uh, you know, charge for content or trying to, um, uh, you know, trying to preserve the print base. And every ounce of effort is going into growth and expansion um, in the model that makes sense for the future. And it's just a completely different kind of energy. Um, and I think what's going to happen is I think there's going to be a whole new generation of companies that are just going to take over these, these, these things market by market, um, you know, unless more radical change happens fairly quickly. Yeah. In some early media reports about your new firm, it talks about uh, you and your partners having an interest in uh, consumer electronics as an investment thesis. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yep. Okay. So here's an example. I said earlier we're not particularly theme-driven. So the question was in media reports, we talk about consumer electronics being a key area of interest for us. Um, which causes people to have strange reactions because people think consumer electronics went to you know, Japan and China and Korea about 20 years ago and haven't come back. Um, so we must be out of our, out of our minds. Um, this is an area where, you know, I said earlier, we, we, we don't tend to work by category, but of course, you know, we can't help ourselves. Um, and so we sit around and we think and we have theories like everybody else. So one of our theories, um, which we sort of lend a little bit of weight to, um, we think there's going to be a whole new wave of consumer electronics companies um, in the U.S. and in, particularly in Silicon Valley. Um, and we think that the sort of center of gravity for the whole consumer electronics industry is likely to shift back uh, to the U.S. And the reason fundamentally is because the technology that goes into a modern consumer electronics device product is completely different than it was when these products left the U.S. Like completely different. And specifically, um, the hardware is much more commoditized um, today than it was 20 years ago. Excuse me. Um, and then these products uh, consist of a much higher percentage of software um, than they used to. Um, and so what we're seeing is a whole pattern of companies in the Valley. And I'll just I'll, I'll name a whole bunch. And they're not all super successful or super successful yet, but Palm and TiVo, and of course Apple and Sling um, and Flip um, and um, Jawbone. Like there's a whole just series of these companies. There's a whole bunch of new ones coming, including some that we're backing. Um, and basically what they all have in common is um, they're taking off-the-shelf components, and in particular off-the-shelf chips, and in particular, these really, really powerful new off-the-shelf graphics chips uh, from companies like NVIDIA and, and, uh, and TI, you know, that do high-speed, you know, they do high-speed 3D graphics and they do, you know, high-def video and it's just, it's just all in a single little chip that you can buy for, you know, a couple bucks. Um, and, you know, they wrap it in a box. It, it comes in a box. But then they build software and services that integrate right in. And, of course, Apple is in many ways the template for that these days, the way that, you know, Apple provides the device and the OS and the application stack and the store, right, and the online services. Um, and Google's obviously doing a lot of that as well. Um, and so we think that's actually a really interesting model. Um, and so we think there are um, a whole bunch of categories of consumer electronics that can get reinvented. Uh, and then there's a whole bunch of new uh, categories that can get created. Um, and so I'll just give you one example. Um, we are angel investors in a company called, uh, co company called Jawbone um, that makes the uh, sort of high-end Bluetooth headset, um, sort of the high-fashion Bluetooth headset. Um, what's interesting about Jawbone, Jawbone is an example of, of this exact thing. Jawbone is a real R&D company um, with deep R&D in Bluetooth and in hardware and in software. Um, and in the new version of the Jawbone headset that just came out, um, when you connect it to your PC, it turns out it has 
an app store. Um, and of course, at first people think, well, that's crazy. It's a Bluetooth headset. Like, what, what kind of apps could we possibly be talking about? Well, you know, the ability to read you turn-by-turn -turn directions, you know, literally read you in your ear turn-by-turn -turn directions, you know, when you're driving around. Um, or the ability to read you your voicemails. Or the ability to read you a Twitter feed or a Facebook feed. Or the ability to do voice SMS. And these are just, our view is like, these are just the tip of the iceberg. And basically, you want to view the, the Bluetooth headset as a wearable computer that's going to have many different kinds of software applications running on in the future. Um, and so, my, you know, basically, if you can do that in Bluetooth headsets, there's any number of categories that you can do that in. So we're extremely excited about this. And if anybody has any great ideas, we're, <laughs> we're totally game. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is the job on I kind of talking about. And our space is to make, the, make it comfortable with custom fit pieces. Um, we, have a, we have a big market. We have a, a market coming where we're spending more and more time interacting with digital data. So the ongoing comfort of the thing is becoming a concern. And we feel like we have found the solution. We think we've got 10 times, 100 times, 100x, if you will. Um, but what we don't have is the team. How would you recommend we, who are stumbling around in the dark, um, putting together a team that can take this where it needs to go? Yeah, so the question is building a team around, around a, uh, an idea that has traction. Um, you know, it is probably recruiting, actually probably the two hardest parts of running these companies. Number one is recruiting, and number two is talking people out of quitting. Um, and by the way, at first recruiting seems like the hard part, and then later you realize talking people out of quitting is the hard part. Uh, and by the way, if you ever go through this and you find yourself talking people out of quitting all the time, it's completely normal. Um, you can't believe how often it happens at successful companies. It's like every day. Um, so, I, you know, I would say the general answer, I don't have any magical answers. The basic answer is brute force. It's going to be kissing a lot of frogs. It's going to be talking to an enormous number of people, a tremendous amount of networking. Um, in some cases, investors and advisors can be very helpful. And so one of the things we always tell early stage companies to do, like, for example, raising angel rounds of financing, is it's a good idea to actually bring in a whole bunch of angels and syndicate the deal because um, a lot of the angels are actually really good at recruiting and networking. Um, that's something we try hard to help with. Um, and then, of course, later on, there are some very good uh, local executive search firms uh, and talent uh, and recruiting firms that are helpful. But, I mean, I'll tell you, it is hard. It's hard for everybody. Like, there's, and there's no real easy answer. Yes? What thoughts went through your mind when Netscape began to lose popularity, and how did you recover from it when it ultimately became sort of a failure in the eyes of consumers? Sure. So, well, we did two things. <laughs> we did two radical shifts. Um, one is we took the browser to free. Was the question was, as Netscape started to come under pressure, um, and started to have issues, particularly with browser market share um, in, the, uh, in the late 90s. Um, we executed two, two shifts. Now, one of the things about a story like Netscape is you don't often actually read the whole story because there's you know, a set of popular perceptions. When companies actually become too popular in consumer consciousness, it's hard to actually track what they do as businesses because uh, narratives get set. But we did two things. One is we took the browser to free, um, and then we ultimately released it as Firefox. Um, and so everybody who loves at Firefox today, and it's you know, huge numbers today, uh, is basically using the Netscape browser, essentially version 10 or something like that, version 12. Um, if you look at the lineage. Um, and then the other thing we did was we made a massive, we put a massive investment, did a massive turn focusing on, 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 on actually two things, software for businesses and then our, our website. Um, and so actually, interestingly, Netscape grew revenue um, all the way through its existence as a public company, um, was profitable for virtually the entire existence, and then, of course, ultimately sold for a lot of money to basically a combination of AOL and Sun. Um, but that's sort of the, the, one of the case studies that I draw on. I mean, in my own business, so at Netscape, we did this sort of massive shift from browsers to, to server software and, and website services. And we're talking like at the time, 600 million in revenue, which, you know, adjusted for inflation is, you know, close to a billion today. So very, very big software business behind that. Um, and then the other shift, you know, my, other, uh, my, uh, my second company, um, uh, uh, you know, went through a huge shift 
um, you know, going from being a services business, LogCloud being a services business, to offshore being a software business. And so <laughs> we, did it, we did it again there um, and also led to a good outcome. And actually, my third company is going through a, a version of the shift right now. Ning just went through a shift for people to watch these things from free, sort of free, freemium, free plus paid to paid. Um, and so my experience with these things is most of these companies, just my experience generally, is most of these companies go through that kind of shift at some point. I'll give you another example. Um, Intel, I talked about before, Intel made the shift from uh, microprocessors to, uh, or from uh, memory chips to microprocessors, which was hugely traumatic uh, back in the 80s. Um, Microsoft, before that, actually early in its life, made a fundamental dramatic shift that they were forced to, basically, um, uh, at the risk of, of, of not being a viable company. Um, it's, 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 it's in all the histories. People don't think about it much, but it was very important at the time, which was Microsoft never intended to be in the operating system business. Um, Microsoft intended itself to be a programming tools business, and their revenue was programming tools for people to be able to build, build software, and they were building basic interpreters and all these other kinds of programming tools selling them to lots of companies, making OSs. If you had a PC in the early 80s, no matter who it came from, it probably had Microsoft Basic uh, as the programming language. Um, they had this amazing deal in hand to license their programming tools to IBM. Um, but IBM was unable to get a good operating system for a variety of reasons. Um, and so um, uh, uh, famously, they uh, tried to get the dominant PC operating system at the time. was called CPM from a company called Digital Research. Uh, famously, the CEO of Digital Research was out flying his, private, his, uh, his, uh, his small uh, private plane that day, couldn't be bothered to meet with IBM, uh, sent in his wife, who was an attorney, who was very hard-nosed on the topic of NDAs, completely alienated the IBM team. Uh, they got up, walked out, drove back up to Seattle, and they told Gates, the deal to license Microsoft Basic is off unless you can come up with an operating system. Um, and so Gates, to his credit, said, well, I think I can probably figure that out. He went and bought. We literally went down the street, bought the rights to an OS that a guy down the street had built for $50,000. And that's DOS. Um, actually, that's part one of the story. Part two of the story is the shift that he tried to make that he failed at making, which turned out to be one of the best um, uh, failures he ever had. Um, in 1985, uh, Bill wrote a famous letter, a semi-famous letter um, to John Scully, who was then the CEO of Apple. Um, and this letter's on the internet, um, begging uh, Scully to license macOS to clone vendors. Um, so that there would be lots of different Mac clones um, so that the Mac UI and OS could take off in terms of market share and unit volume. And because at that point, Microsoft's view was most of the money is going to be in the apps. Um, so at that point, they were building Microsoft Word and Microsoft Excel and PowerPoint. Um, and you know, IBM had taken DOS kind of as far as it could go, and Mac looked like the next big thing. And so he tried to get a whole Mac clone market created. Um, and in fact, he went to, there's an attachment to the letter where he went to Motorola at the time, which was at the time, at the time a big important computer company, uh, and he had Motorola agree to basically build Mac clones um, if only uh, Apple would license them uh, Mac OS. Um, and so he, had, he like had the big OEM in hand, took them to, uh, uh, took them to Apple, and of course Scully said, no, no way. No way are we ever going to license Mac OS, which then led to Microsoft developing Windows, which then led to Windows having 97% market share, Mac having 3% market share. Um, and so I just... It is so common. I, I feel like I've been through it now two, three times. Um, uh, the vast majority of businesses that I've ever worked with have been through it. Um, I think it's just so common to go through this kind of transition. Um, I think once you get one of these businesses up and running, you have to go through this kind of transition. I mean, in tech, it almost seems like you have to do it every five years, um, almost no matter what. Um, the other classic, right, Silicon Valley story is Sun. Um, you know, Sun, like, hit its stride in the 80s when it started um, building, um, uh, building Unix workstations. And then they went through a massive structural transition in the early 90s uh, to building servers that like, almost killed the company. It was like, incredibly intense. Um, and then, of course, you know, years later, there was another fundamental structural uh, change uh, that they went through to try to adapt to Linux and Intel servers uh, in the early 2000s. And, of course, that ultimately led to you know, some later on being sold to Oracle. That one didn't go as well. 
Um, but you know, that's again a, a common story. And so my opinion is sort of a key skill set of actually running these companies or working with these companies is being able to make that kind of transition. And it is never fun, no matter when you go through it, but it's a necessary thing. And so I draw on my own experience, you know, having done that a lot. Yeah. Um, when you're doing a startup, uh, I was wondering if you know any startups that are using the new cloud providers and is that a viable way to keep costs down when you're doing a brand new startup? And then I was also wondering about for for kind of the new trend with with uh, user generated content and social networking uh, social networking sites. Right now, a lot of those sites get some of the, a good portion of their money from uh, ad revenue, and I'm wondering if you ever see a point where that ad revenue can start being shared with the people generating the content, and would that ever be fine? Yeah. Okay, so two questions. Um, I remember both questions. So um, startups, first question was on startups using cloud services. Um, let me take that one first. So virtually, explain what I mean, what I mean by, also by the question. Virtually all, it's been very striking, virtually all of the startups that we see that are building some kind of internet service, whether it's a web service or a mobile application, uh, or even consumer uh, electronics. We saw, we've seen startups recently that are building, for example, different kinds of fitness devices, this, this new consumer electronics model, and it's got an online service component to it. So it's got, there's a website you know, that, that aggregates all the data. Um, virtually all of these companies are building on cloud services. So virtually all of them are building, uh, and in particular today, interestingly, most of them are building on AWS. Like AWS is like 96% or something, and then Rackspace is in there, and then um, every once in a while you'll see somebody who's on I don't think we've seen anybody on Google. Google has a thing called App Engine. I don't think we've seen anybody building on that yet. And we haven't seen anybody yet building on Microsoft's new thing. So Amazon right now is just, just doing a great job in that market. Um, and this is a really, this is another sort of factor that's changing the economics of these businesses a lot. Um, it's a really big deal. So these companies otherwise, you know, five years ago, these new services companies would have to raise a lot more money a lot quicker because they'd have to buy a lot of servers and a lot of networking gear and a lot of, they have their own data center. Um, and they'd have to buy a lot of storage gear. There's a lot of capital cost involved in building uh, a web service. So back when, even, even back when Facebook started, right, 2004, 2005, like Facebook today owns a very large number of servers, uh, which have, you know, which cost a lot of money. Um, the folks who are running on AWS are completely sidestepping that upfront capital cost. And so their, their initial fundraise is much lower than it would otherwise have to be. Um, and then it's much easier to scale, at least for the first few years. Um, there's a question of whether ultimately you'll have to jump onto your own servers if you get big enough, um, it, whether, whether uh, AWS or one of these cloud services can scale to the really huge services. Um, but um, you know, a very large number of entrepreneurs are making that bet. And furthermore, a lot of entrepreneurs that are running older internet businesses that had to do their, all their own backend um, that didn't have AWS available at the time, a lot of them will now tell you, <laughs> if I were to do it over again, I would definitely not do it the way we did it. I would definitely do it all uh, in the cloud. And so that's a huge... I mean, that's just been a, a, a huge change um, uh, and absolutely fundamental. Um, and again, it's, this is why I get so excited about a lot of these. Like the, the, that's why I, I pair actually technology and economics when I talk about the, the kinds of changes that take place. Um, and so to me, like the way I think about it is what I mentioned with consumer electronics, where you have these chips now for a couple bucks that you can buy that do you know, 3D graphics that you can embed in, you know, in any, in anywhere. Like the, the, what, what those chips can do in the, you know, 10 years ago would have cost you thousands of dollars. Um, and so there's just all of a sudden a whole new categories of products can get built. And so the cloud services to me are the exact same thing. Um, we can now afford as an industry to experiment on a much broader range of software and services um, because we can develop them so much more cheaply than we used to be able to. 
Um, so there's that. And then um, the other question, oh, user-generated content. So the question was, you see all these user-generated content companies, you know, famously YouTube and blogging platforms and so forth, and they all seem to Twitter most recently, and they all seem to have the characteristic that the company um, that uh, runs them ends up making a lot of money on advertising and the people who actually create all the content don't. Um, and so wouldn't it be a good idea to basically share the revenue uh, out with the users? Um, almost every attempt I'm aware of to try that has failed. Um, and so um, in practice, and there have been a whole bunch of attempts for 10 years, and I bet you have never even heard of any of them because they failed so spectacularly that they just vaporized. Um, the successful user-generated content uh, applications and sites tend to harness people's passions much more than they tend to harness people's greed. Um, and so just in practice, um, the sites and services that are super geared towards how people think and how they want to live and how they want to act independently of how they make money, but to give people a platform for expression or a, a platform for communication that's really good and fun and empowering and, 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 uh, and, and, and wonderful to be on, like those are the ones that tend to win in terms of user behavior, and the ones that try to split revenue um, generally never never get anywhere. And it's this is one of the this is a lot of economists look at this. A lot of free market economists, you know, University of Chicago economists look at this and say, well, this can't be true because everybody knows that humans are purely uh, economically motivated and only want to make money and never want to do anything for fun. Um, and you know, and then you just look. I'll give you another case study. Um, uh, Wikipedia. Um, Nobody makes money on Wikipedia. Google uh, launches this big effort called Knoll, um, and the big promise of Knoll is that it's going to be like Wikipedia, except if you contribute to it, you can make money. And I mean, it's like a dead zone. Like there is like nothing on Knoll, and Wikipedia is you know gigantic. So it just it, Clay Shirky talks a lot about this in his book. Here comes everyone. Is there's something really magical about harnessing people sort of um, in large numbers um, on things that they love and things that they enjoy doing, um, and that seems to be the template. Uh, for it much more than immediately trying to figure out how to help people make money, which is just a really interesting large-scale psychological experiment, but one for which there's now a lot of data. Yeah. Uh, how did you find your new users, or your first users for both Netscape and Ning? Because as far as I can see, it, they were both kind of new markets and new categories. Nobody wakes up and says, hey, I want a social network, or hey, I want to browse the web at the time. <laughs> and so where did you find your first users? So the question is, where did the first users for both Netscape and Ning come from? Because as you say, they were both brand new markets, and so there wasn't not a lot of, you know, there wasn't, wasn't like people go to the grocery store and they're like, boy, I like one of those Ning things, um, along with my Coca-Cola. Um, so, um, so both Netscape and Ning are, as are Facebook and Twitter and a lot of these other things, are network effects. They're, at, at their core, they're network effects businesses. And so the nature of network effects businesses, um, the definition of network effects basically is that fundamentally you're building a network where people can communicate or share in some way. And the nature of a network is it gets more and more valuable to everybody who's on it as more people join. So um, you know, when 10 people are on it, it's not very interesting. When 100 people are on it, it starts to get more interesting. When there's a million people on it, it starts to get really interesting. Um, and that f very first set of users actually like it more and more as it grows because there's more and more people to talk to. Um, and you often see with these network effects things like they can grow really fast for a very long time because they're just getting continuously more and more useful to everybody who's on them. Um, as another example, I'm, I'm, we're involved in, as I mentioned earlier, we're involved in Skype, and Skype is now, Skype today, right? So Skype now is six or seven years old. Skype today, it's over uh, uh, 1.1 million downloads a day, um, you know, so something like closing in on, I don't know, something like 600 million accounts, like just staggering, absolutely staggering numbers and growth rate. And if anything, the growth has accelerated. Um, and a lot of people say, well, Skype was like from 2005, like who cares anymore? And it's like, well, Skype in 2005 had like 14 people you could call. Skype in 2010 has like 500 million. Like that's that's much more useful. So, 
The good news with network effects businesses is that when they grow, as they grow, they can often grow very fast for a very long time, and they get very useful in the long run. You have this massive chicken and egg problem up front, which is, okay, if there's no, it's like, you know, selling somebody the first fax machine, right, was a hard sales call. (laughs) Just imagine the sales rep saying, well, what can you do with the fax machine? Well, you can draw on a piece of paper, you can stick it in here, and you can send it. Okay, well, who can I send it to? Well, nobody. Fax machine, actually, by the way, fax machine was invented in the 1860s. Um, this may have something to do with the fact that it didn't take off until the 1970s. Um, true story. They had the fax machine working before they had the telephone working. Um, back in the, during, during like the Civil War era. Um, so um, uh, so the, you have the chicken and egg problem. And so basically what you try to do, um, what we try to do with Netscape was you basically seed it into the right initial community to, get the, to basically bootstrap the chicken and egg movement. Uh, uh, momentum. And what we did at that point was we basically seeded it, not surprisingly, into people who were super interested in, at that point, the internet, which was a brand new phenomenon, um, and people who were very interested in internet software and information sharing on the internet. And at that point, there were some other systems with names like Gopher um, and Waste and FTP that people were using to share files and do things. And so we basically just found those groups of people who are already sharing information on the internet. We just introduced it straight in there. Uh, And we actually used, at the time, we used news groups to do it because that was where you could talk to all these people. Um, and so that worked. Um, later with Ning and, and, and more recent network effects businesses, um, new entrepreneurs in network effects businesses are much smarter uh, and much better educated on this phenomenon. And so the new network effects businesses tend to have what's called a term called virality. They tend to be viral. Uh, and by that, I mean they tend to have a mechanism built straight into the product that causes it to propagate to other users. Um, and so the classic example on this is you sign up for Facebook, and it encourages you to, uh, to upload your uh, address book, your email address book, and then it tells you, here are all your friends in your address book who are already on Facebook, and so you can connect to them automatically. And by the way, here are your friends who aren't on Facebook, and wouldn't you like to send them an email inviting them to Facebook? Um, and so there's a whole bunch of different viral mechanisms like that um, that you can employ um, and um, if you do them right, and there's a whole art and science to virality, um, that's a, a whole special thing in and of itself, but if you do that right, you can sort of wire a network effects um, uh, 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 sort of uh, product. You can wire it for growth from a very early stage, and so we did much more of that at Ning. Yeah. Uh, you talked about, you alluded to the capital costs going lower, um, and you also alluded to, to industries having to change. Well, what do you see with uh, the VC industry? Um, how is it going to change as capital requirements continue to drop, and do you see, how, how substantially do you see capital requirements dropping for, say, consumer-oriented tech companies in the next five, ten years? Okay, so this is the mother load of all questions for me, so I'll probably talk for about an hour. So the question is, um, how are the economics of the venture capital industry changing? Um, and in particular, like, what are the changes, what, what structural changes are going to happen in venture capital as a consequence of these economic changes? So first of all, I don't believe there is such a thing as the venture capital industry. Um, I don't think it exists. Um, I think you've got a set of firms, you've got 20, 30, 40 boutique venture capital firms that do really well over time, and then you've got about 660 Firms that will generally very much break your heart as an investor if you invest in them. Um, they'll return you less than the stock market which, with much higher risk. Um, so venture capital is one of those things. Venture capital firms, hedge funds, buyout firms, uh, investment firms operating in sort of special markets that are illiquid or have special knowledge. You tend to have a few firms that generate all the returns, and then you tend to have a lot of people who want to generate those returns that can never actually figure out how to, how to, how to hurdle the bar. And so like, if you pull up, you see these, you can download this list online. If you pull up like venture capital firms in the U.S., it's like 700. And you'll read, you can read through that for like three hours. And like, you won't recognize the vast majority of the names on that list. And how they get funded, I don't have the first clue. 
Like, I, you know, it's the same thing with hedge funds. There's like 8,000 hedge funds. Like, it's just like, I, you don't even know who these people are. The problem is, it, when you talk about the venture capital industry, all that data gets rolled up. Um, and then they look at it and they say, well, venture capital is terrible because venture capital doesn't make any money. And it's like, well, yeah, if you include all the bad firms, it's terrible. Um, so there's really no, it, it's this really striking thing where it's, inc- and, and, and entrepreneur, what's interesting is entrepreneurs know this. Um, and it's not like there's a shortage. There's, there's a bunch of good firms, but like entrepreneurs are well aware that there's a set of firms that know what they're doing, and there's a set of firms that really don't. And so there's a whole adverse selection thing that kicks in. Um, so, um, so there's two ways of asking the question. One is what's going to happen to venture capital broadly. Um, and um, I almost spent like almost no time on, on that topic. Um, to me, the very interesting question is what's going to happen to the, the really good venture capital firms. Um, and I think there's a whole variety of things that are happening there. So one is... Um, there's this whole tier of sort of angel or seed funding. Um, because it's so much cheaper to start these companies, um, there's a whole tier of angel or seed funding that's now, that has now appeared and is, is becoming sort of very professionalized. Um, and in fact, a lot of the best angel investors are now starting actually raising funds. Um, and so, for example, uh, Ronnie, my colleague Ronnie's father, Ron Conway, is one of the really well-known Silicon Valley VCs. And he's just raised, uh, or angel investors, and he's just raised a new fund um, to, uh, you know, to, do, to, to even ramp up his activity. Um, and that's very exciting because the, the best angels are really good. And if anything, the best angels are at least as good or better than the, uh, than the, than the good VCs in a lot of cases. So, there's, so on the very early stage, that's very exciting on the one hand. On the other hand, there's this equally interesting phenomenon that's happening in later rounds. Um, and the, the classic case study there is this uh, Russian firm called DST um, that has become a major investor in both um, in companies like Facebook and Zynga and most recently Groupon. Um, and so um, you may have noticed in the last 10 years, since my last appearance here uh, on April 7th, 2000, um, there are very few IPOs. Um, and so you've got, some of the, you've got companies like Facebook and Zynga and Groupon that are getting very successful uh, financially and getting very large, and they're not going public nearly as early as they used to. Um, and so there's this new category of investor um, that is coming in. And some of these are existing firms that are now getting larger, um, and some of these are new firms that are being created uh, that are coming in and are investing later and later um, in, um, in, in sort of the company life, uh, life cycle. Um, and some of these uh, firms are taking, you know, ownership stakes of, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, 500, 600, 700 million of indiv- indiv- an individual ownership stake um, in, um, you know, in a, in a sort of high-growth company at a later stage. Um, another example of that is actually the Skype deal we just did. Um, you know, Skype deal was more of an LBO, but it was a little bit of like what I'm describing because it was a $2.75 billion uh, transaction, you know, for a company with, at the time, about... 700 million in revenue, give or take. Um, and so, you know, and again, it was like, you know, in, you know, Skype will go public at some point, but, um, you know, a lot of these companies that maybe in the long run will be public are not yet public. And so there's these specific kinds of investment opportunities that pop up. Um, and so I think that stuff's really exciting. And, and I think it maps up well to how these companies are getting built, which is, and, and you'll hear people overgeneralize. You'll hear people say, well, companies cost less to get started, and so therefore they'll just raise less money than companies used to. And I don't think that's true. I think they raise less money at first, and then I think they raise more money as they grow because the markets are larger. Uh, if you really want to build a company to go into a huge global market, ultimately you're probably going to have to raise a lot of money because you're going to need to expand to be able to go reach the market. So, um, so all the sort of tension and activity I see around people rethinking their models has to do with some combination of either going much smaller or going much larger. Yeah. When Facebook started, there was a lot of competition. Uh, how did it emerge the winner? Oh, oh. question. How did Facebook... <laughs> When Facebook got started, there was a lot of competition. How did it emerge the winner? Um, so <laughs> when Facebook got started, it's actually even more dramatic than that. When Facebook got started, um, uh, social networking had been declared dead and buried. Um, uh, so uh, Friendster had failed. Um, and so Friendster, uh, for this company Friendster, hopefully people in the audience are not so young that you don't remember Friendster. 
Um, although time flies. So Friendster appeared in like 01, 02, 03, and was this, he was a Silicon Valley startup, very bright, very great entrepreneur named uh, uh, Jonathan Abrams. Uh, and Friendster was sort of the first big social networking service that took off, and it grew at a sort of a vertical takeoff rate. Um, and then a bunch of things went wrong, and it, 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 had, it had huge issues and lost most of its users. Um, and most people um, around the valley concluded, okay, that's, you know, basically that, that was evidence of category failure. And so, like, that's it. Social networking has been proven to not work because Friendster didn't work. Um, later on, MySpace, and then after that, shortly after that, Facebook uh, emerged and essentially, like, did a, they, they did some things differently. So, um, MySpace focused on a, basically entertainment um, and Los Angeles as a sort of initial seeding ground. Um, as opposed to Silicon Valley, and then Facebook concentrated on college campuses. And so they, they, they seeded the network effect differently, although they, they both became large services ultimately. Um, so um, they took a, a different approach to basically get to market. Um, but in my opinion, that's all sort of the, 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 uh, the beginning of the story. The real story has been Facebook in the last five years. Um, Facebook has become one of the great Silicon Valley technology companies. Um, and so when you look inside Facebook at what the company actually is, it is a technology, it's a technology machine. It, it is a development machine um, with world-class uh, software capabilities um, that are you know, easily equivalent to what you would find at Microsoft or at Oracle uh, or at you know, any great historical software company. It's a really, really top-notch software company. Um, and, like, and it's like Google in that way. It's the same thing, right? When you go inside Google, it's a world-class software company. Um, and, you know, what we've seen in search engines is, like, it's a huge asset. Um, it's been a huge asset for Google to be world-class at R&D. It's been the, the cornerstone of why they succeeded. I think the same thing is true for Facebook. They've, just, they've become world-class at R&D. Phenomenal software engineering. Um, you know, a lot of Facebook's competitors in the last few years have not been as good uh, at software engineering. And MySpace, in particular, had the potential to become that good, but they got bought by News Corp, and, you know, there was a whole series of management changes there that sort of prevented them from developing the company they could have been. Um, and so, um, you know, at this point, Facebook is, 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 it's a, is an absolutely phenomenal engineering company. And to me, one of the reasons I'm so excited about our business is because I think Google and Facebook are great examples, among many others, but are great examples of how, you know, of how the Valley is still, the Valley is still, the Valley is very bad at many things, but the Valley is very good at creating new technology companies. Um, and in a lot of markets, in a lot of big important markets, the quality of the technology and the products really matters. Um, and I think both of those companies are case studies of that. So going on the team building question that was asked earlier, you talked about networking in order to attract people to apply to your company. But when you're a three-person startup with no revenue, just an exciting vision, how do you convince your top choices once you've identified them to actually join your venture instead of going to Microsoft or Google? Yep. So stock options, which they'll tell you. <laughs> Those aren't worth anything. Um, and then a friend of mine likes to say, um, the other part of it is uh, vision, and he says the difference between a vision and a hallucination is that other people can see the vision. <laughs> um, and I think that's actually the, 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 the core answer to the question. So the best entrepreneurs are really good at selling people on their company precisely because they can explain the way the world is going to look in a way that is so compelling. This is the famous Steve Jobs. If you talk about Steve Jobs has what he calls the reality distortion field. So like if you get within 10 feet of Steve Jobs, Whatever he says in the next 20 minutes, you're going to walk out of there believing. But whatever he says, um, you know, he can say the sky is purple, and you'd be like, "Yep, that makes total sense." Um, <laughs> and you know, four hours later over dinner, as you're explaining it, you know, to your, you know, to your wife, your husband, and you're like, "Well, you know, I don't really know what he meant by that, but it was really, <laughs> really compelling at the time." Um, the best entrepreneurs all tend to have that in common. They tend to be really good at that. They tend to be really—it's it's essentially sales, um, you know, s selling to uh, selling to employees. Um, and so it's incredibly. Um, uh, uh, it's an incredibly valuable skill to be able to do that, that plus stock options. Um, the other thing I've found with hiring over the years, 
um, is that while it's incredibly frustrating, part of the frustration is actually a good thing. Um, because the frustration, right, is you try to talk somebody into joining, they don't, they don't come, and you're like, you know, damn it, I, I wasted a lot of time. Um, but hiring is also a selection process, and it's a self-selection process on the part of the candidate, right? And so of all the people you interview, like if you hired them all, it would turn out that a good two-thirds or three-quarters of them you probably shouldn't have hired anyway. Um, and what you can do in the hiring process, what the best companies do is they provide a very stark idea of what their company is and what it isn't. You know, so we are a company where people are expected to work 18-hour days, and if you don't like that, don't come here. Or we are a company where people are expected to go home at 5 o'clock every day, and if you think that would be frustrating, don't do it. Or whatever it is. Or we have dogs in the office, or we have... We have a company. We have a company we've invested in where the whole company does yoga together. And so, if you like yoga, this is the company for you. If you don't like yoga, don't go there. You're going to be asked to put your feet in positions that you're just going to be completely uncomfortable with. Um, literally, yoga every day. Um, uh, company's called Asana, which of course is a, is a is means a yoga pose. I, I learned. Um, <laughs> So a very, very, very stark idea uh, is, is very good because it's polarizing. Uh, and I think the best companies tend to be polarizing. And so if, if in your hiring process you're turning people off as often as you're turning them on because it's just you're making it, they're, they're sort of deciding, well, this is clearly not the right fit for me, I think that's a good thing. Um, and actually, by the way, the same thing applies later on to product development and sales. Um, we much prefer companies that have polarizing products. Like we love companies where products where like some people hear about it and they're like, that's awful. I would hate that. Give you an example at Foursquare. Um, we were recently in the bidding for, we dropped out, but we were in the bidding for Foursquare. You describe Foursquare to like 20 people. Uh, so Foursquare is a location-based service where you, know, you can check in and you can see where all your friends are and, you, and they can see where you are. Like you describe that to 20 people, like 16 of them are like, that is the scariest, stupidest thing I've ever heard. Like, why would, it's like, an, there's actually a website called pleaserobme.com. <laughs> and they use the Foursquare API and they basically give you a running list of the names and addresses of people who have announced that they're not at home. I, so like this just like freaks people out. Well, we love it because 16 people out of 20 might hate it, but the four people who love it just absolutely love it, and they pride themselves on like being on Foursquare all the time and logging in all the time. So we we would much rather back a company that has that kind of polarizing vision. My other favorite one recently that we're not in, but I, I love is Blippy, and so Blippy is the one where all of your purchases are online, right? You just plug in your credit card, and all of a sudden everything you buy is listed online for your friends to see. And again, most people, I see eyebrows going up. Most people are like, oh, my God. You know, <laughs> I buy stuff that I wouldn't want anybody to see. I wonder what that is. You can, you can, maybe later on, everybody can volunteer one thing they bought that nobody, they don't want anybody to know about. Um, but Blippi's already has a core community of people who just think this is the best idea ever. Um, and so um, another great example, there's, there's, this, there's this whole phenomenon of people. Um, uh, this, there's this like, health and fitness bloggers who are like fantastic because they're like documenting in extensive detail like all of their like you know all the stuff they're eating all the stuff they're not eating all the weight they're losing all their bodily functions like you can learn stuff about people that like you know where I grew up like you didn't talk about um, but people love it because a certain kind of people a certain kind of person loves it because it's social reinforcement and it's being part of a community um, and so yeah we, we, we love polarization and I think that also works for works for recruiting really well so when you're looking at an early stage company, how do you come up with a valuation for investing in those companies? Yeah, the question is, on an early stage company, how do you come up with valuation for, um, for the investment? So for an early stage company, generally, it's, uh, there's just a set of sort of market comparables. Um, and so generally, you basically look, what we do as investors is we just kind of look at a cross-section of other companies that are you know, similar founding team, similar potential of idea, similar state of company. Um, and so, you know, and this is all, Ronnie's an, Ronnie's an expert on this, but um, there's, um, you, know, if it's, um, you know, if it's two people, two founders who have not started a company before and have a brand new idea and don't, but don't have anything running yet, 
the valuation could be arbitrarily low. It could be you know, 500,000 pre or something or a million pre. Um, if it's you know, two people who have successfully started a company before and sold it for $50 million, then the valuation might be two or three or four pre. Um, if it's you know, Diane Green who started VMware or you know, Bill Gates decides to start his next company, you know, the valuation will be significantly north. Um, so track record of people. Um, the other real moving uh, target um, that you see a lot um, is, um, you know, is goes to this product, product that becomes a company versus a company that comes up with a product. Um, product that becomes a company, um, those will get higher valuations in general because there's already something running. Um, and I always tell people, especially in software, like by far the best thing to do from a fundraising standpoint is actually build the product first and then raise money. Like, or at least raise a very small amount to build a product and then raise a large amount of money because um, you get dramatically more leverage that way. And actually, as investors, we enjoy that because um, you know, it's, nice it's nice to be able to see people with a small amount of money to build the initial product without having to take a big gamble. And then it's nice to be able to double down once they prove that it works. Yeah. Um, in the past 10 years, aggregate returns have been lower than the previous 10 years, and this VC thing is a proxy for that, as well as you know, lower investment capital. Do you think that's a function of the actual value that's being created? financial markets, why do you think that is? Hmm. The question is, um, in the last 10 years, you mean overall like aggregate equity value, stock market value, has obviously been a lot lower in the last 10 years. I don't know if people have noticed this, but the stock market has sucked for 10 years. Um, If you have a 401k, you might have noticed. Um, uh, uh, Versus the 90s, and then venture capital. Yeah, and you're right. So venture capital is a proxy for that. Um, So venture capital generally is sort of a, you can think of venture capital as almost almost a form of leverage, um, sort of higher risk, higher return. Uh, on top of equities, I mean, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not an economist, but my diagnosis is that the stock market is manic depressive, um, and there are periods in the '90s where, you know, everybody is all excited, and there are people in the times in the 2000s where everybody's all depressed about everything. Um, so I just restricted but I think that's also true. So in tech, in, in tech, uh, the so okay, so I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you the answer first, then explain. So as far as I can tell, technology. Um, new technologies follow a shockingly straight sort of linear line. Uh, and part of that is Moore's Law. Like part of that is just the mechanics of like how semiconductors get built, where they follow very predictable patterns over time. Uh, but also like software advances. Like software advances just keep coming. Like every year there are more so- you know, better software tools and better software infrastructure and better programming techniques, and programmers keep getting smarter and more productive. Um, bandwidth keeps getting cheaper. Like it, there's a huge amount of, of progress. And, and in fact, from 2000 to 2005 was a time of fantastic technology progress. Like the prices on all kinds of things dropped tremendously. New kinds of applications got created. Google took off. Facebook got created. Like all kinds of things happened. Um, so as far as I can tell, there is a very large disconnect between what's actually happening in the technology and then whatever's happening in terms of, especially in terms of the public stock market. And then the private markets sort of you know, echo that to a certain extent. So you know, my only conclusion is you essentially, to be in this business, you essentially have to ignore um, the opinion of sort of the broad base of investors, um, be- precisely because they're going to be ma- manic depressive. Um, and the other thing I would say is trying to, then you say, well, what if you wanted to take that into account? What if you wanted to think about it? Well, the problem is that when, when people try to, when, pe- when people in technology think too much about what's happening in the, in the broader markets or in the stock market, they tend to want to try to get involved when things are hot, when the stock market is hot, and they tend to want to bail out uh, when the stock market is low. So, um, you know, a very large number of people, you know, came out of investment banking, came to Silicon Valley in 1999 because they thought they were going to make a lot of money. And in 2001, they all turned around and went back to, went back to uh, New York and created the credit crisis. Um, <laughs> that worked out well. Um, and so, you know, it's almost like a, it's almost like a buy high, sell low kind of thing. Um, you know, I guess my own personal point of view is just it's, it's, ir- it's irrelevant. It'll even out over time. 
And if you're building real value in technology, it'll, it'll, it'll ultimately show up in, in the prices. But you know that could take five years, 10 years, 15 years. Uh, that could take a lot of time. It's one of the reasons I actually like being in the venture capital business. Venture capital is actually a very interesting asset class uh, like buyouts because you have this enormous virtue of, the, of a 10-year lockup on the funds, right? So we raised money in, in uh, July of uh, uh, 2009. We have until 2019, right? A guaranteed contractual lockup. Um, and then we actually have the ability to extend it beyond that, right, if the stock market is low. So, you know, I talked to friends of mine who run hedge funds um, or mutual funds, um, and, you know, mutual funds get redeemed on a daily basis. Uh, hedge funds get redeemed quarterly. Venture capital gets redeemed every, like, 13 years. Like, it's perfect. <laughs> it's outstanding. And so, you know, our, our view, obviously, is you, we should take full advantage of that. We should be funding things um, that have, you know, enormous long-term potential. And then if it takes 7 to 10 years, and if we go through a full up and down cycle and then back into an up cycle in that time, uh, you know, that's just fine. So that, that's our goal.